Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is George Skangos. George is the CEO of San Francisco-based Veer Biotechnology. He's best known for his last job as the CEO of Biogen, one of the industry's biggest companies. He left that high-profile perch a little more than two years ago. Like many big company veterans, he heard the siren song to join a startup. In this case, it was from Arch Venture Partners. The vision was pretty clear. All these new technologies that are enabling advances in cancer biology, particularly around harnessing the immune system to fight tumors, could also be harnessed toward fighting infectious diseases. Everyone in the world during 2016 was trying to elbow their way into cancer, not infectious disease. There was a pretty obvious gap in the market. You make more money treating cancer than you do by making a new flu vaccine. Arch wondered, given the state of technology, what could a startup do for infectious disease if it were given a massive war chest, something like 500 million or 600 million dollars? Many little infectious disease startups die from starvation, that is, a lack of capital. In this case, would the money help assemble the experienced team and the quality technologies under one roof to pull off something big? It's still very much an open question at Veer at this early stage of gestation. Now, usually in the long run, I ask a lot about people's life experiences. It helps set the stage for who the guest is and reveals a lot about why they do the things they do. In this episode with George, we skipped over a lot of that because I had already written a magazine-type profile of him back in 2011 for Xconomy. I recommend going back to read that for a few minutes. You can see the link in the show summary on TimmermanReport.com. But the gist is that George Skangos is the product of a working-class Greek immigrant family in Lynn, Massachusetts. It's not that far from the throbbing heartbeat of biotech in Kendall Square, but to use a cliche, it's culturally a world away. George's life journey is a good reminder that amazing things are possible in this country because of investments and systems put in place decades and decades ago by far-sighted leaders. It's also important to remember today that medicine is for everyone, from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Lynn, Massachusetts and way beyond especially when you're talking about the fight against infectious diseases that are global. We talked in this conversation some about the science and company building aspects of Veer, but also about how it can and should think about fair and responsible pricing of its products down the road. This is a conversation that needs to happen in every company at every stage of maturation. Now, one small production note. We recorded this session at a hotel during the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. And at a couple of points, you can hear the cable cars go by on Powell Street, ringing their bells. I hope you don't mind. I thought it was kind of charming. Now, before we dive in, a word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com slash long run. And if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person. Over the course of a year, that's quite a bargain if I don't say so myself. Group subscriptions, which include an internal sharing license at your company, are available at a discount. For details, ask me at luke at timmermanreport.com. Now, join me and George Skangos on the long run. Here I am today at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference with George Skangos, the President and CEO of Veer Biotechnology. Welcome, George. Thanks for joining me on the long run. Thanks, Luke. Happy to be here. 
So, George, um, as you know, with this show, I often like to start by asking people about their background and how they got into this industry. In your case, I'm going to make an exception because I already wrote a profile of you several years ago, and I will just refer people to that story on Xconomy from 2011. Uh, sounding old now. But um, it, um, I think one, one of the interesting things, I, I did reread this before coming in, uh, reminded me that, you know, you come from a working class background, the town of Lynn, Massachusetts. Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, from an immigrant family. Yeah, yeah. And didn't even speak English until you went to school. That's, kindergarten, I believe. That's correct. Yeah. So you've come a long way, the proverbial long way. I have. And I look, I, that's one of the great things about uh, this country, right? That you can come from a working class background and with a little bit of luck, um, you can um, exit the working class, right? And and get into this mainstream America. But it also um, shapes who you are. I remember when we had that conversation, we're sitting there in the heart of Kendall Square, uh, and you know, you're know you running this big company with all these smart people, but you, you hadn't forgotten that uh, Lynn was actually not that far away as the crow flies, no, uh, even though it's a, a long way culturally. I, look, I think when you come from a background like that, what you realize is there are a lot of people who are in rather distressed economic situations who are smart, they are capable, they're ethical, they're great people, they're just in a tough circumstance. And it gives you kind of respect for everyone, or it should, right? That, you know, everybody's a person, everybody has hopes and dreams and families and challenges. People find themselves in better or worse circumstances as an accident of their birth. And some of those accidents are really difficult to overcome, and people do the best they can. And so it, it, uh, it, I think it taught me to be respectful of everyone, regardless of their station or situation. And hopefully reminds you as a pharmaceutical executive I, uh, that medicine is for everyone. Science is for the benefit of everyone. Medicine is for the benefit of everyone. It should be. Should be. Look, that's the, look, the amazing thing about this industry for me, that we are working to make drugs, to make compounds that improve the lives of people who are suffering from some affliction, right? That the goal, the ideal should be that those drugs are available to everyone who needs them. There are some practical limitations on that, as, as, as you know. But certainly at Biogen, you know, our goal was to get the drug to everybody who needed it, regardless of their ability to pay. And uh, we tried our best to do that within the constraints that the system imposes on you. Right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that that's true. And, you know, today at Veer, we're working on diseases that are certainly prevalent in the developed world, but also prevalent in parts of the world that uh, which are economically disadvantaged. And I think we have an interesting business model that should allow us to get our, to make money on our drugs from those countries that pay and to make those drugs available in countries that can't. Well, this is why I bring this up. Yeah. Uh, it, it, when you work on infectious disease by nature, this is something that's not concentrated in just, you exactly. know, some wealthy zip codes. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's incumbent upon the innovator to come up with something innovative uh, that benefits human health, but also to to try to make it as widely available as possible. Um, and it's not just the innovator, it's, it's all of us yes. like, figuring out a, a framework that works. That's right. And, you know, so look, in, in that situation, some of the, you know, Gates Foundation and others have made huge contributions. And, you know, in some of the programs we're doing, we're working with the Gates Foundation. And the goal there is for us to develop drugs and hopefully they'll work and, and vaccines. And if so, then we can you know, commercialize them in parts of the world that, where they're needed and where we'll be able to make a good return for our investors. And the Gates Foundation can then make them available in other parts of the world so that everybody can have access. Well, let's come to that when we talk about kind of the formation of Veer yeah, and what yeah. drew you here. Um, but just to rewind a bit, um, you your your last stop before here was the CEO of Biogen. This right. is one of the, you know, the big four or five biotech companies, plum position. You're, you're commanding troops all over the world, uh, lots of R&D budget. Um, it was actually kind of a turnaround story, uh, had not introduced any new drugs for a number of years, needed to come in and, and clean some house. Um, we brought in a new management team, D generally got pretty high marks, stock went up, um, got 
uh, how how long of a um, a run was this for you? I, well, I was at Biogen for six and a half years. Mm-hmm. You know, I got there in two thousand and ten. And it was true, the company hadn't introduced new drugs in quite a while, and we did manage to introduce several new drugs during my tenure there. But of course, those drugs didn't materialize out of thin air. They were in the company being moved forward before I got there. Mm-hmm. So I can't take credit for the, you know, the, the explosion of new drugs. I think you know, I do feel good about kind of reshaping the organization and making it capable of bringing forward those drugs in a relatively short time frame and executing. And I think uh, we did that very well. So um, it was an interesting experience. And look, it's a very different job from the one I had now or the one I had before it. Um, Different challenges, uh, but um, tremendously interesting and and challenging. And... uh, now, before that, you had run a, a small to mid cap Axelixis. Right. Uh, started from the, I mean, some pretty basic science, yes. as, as I recall, and and then Biogen. What, what you mentioned is a big difference. What was the big difference for you? Well, when you run a company like Axelixis as it was then, or Veer as it is now, it's local. There's no commercial. There's no international business. Uh, the you know the regulations under which you have to operate if you're marketing pharmaceutical products or somewhere distant in the future and it's largely R&D there's some business involved some financing involved you have to keep the company funded of course but um, it's much more focused and both geographically and in things that you have to think about and so it that has uh, attractions in the sense that you can get into what the company is doing in much more depth you know, when you have a, a CEO of a company like Biogen, y- you cannot get into everything in depth. There's just too much going on. Mm-hmm. And so you manage a lot more through other people than you do when you're in a company like uh, a much smaller company, like, like Exelixis or Veer. You're further away from the science. And you are further away from the science. Look, my lowest free energy state is to migrate towards the science. That's <laughs> what I, you know, where I started, and it's what I'm really interested in. And so I have to always check myself to make sure I'm not spending too much time on the science and I'm paying enough attention to other parts of the business as well. So you do six years at Biogen. What, what was going on that last year? I mean, uh, how did you decide that, that this was time for you to go? Well, look, my, um, my family's here in San Francisco. Uh, so for those six and a half years, I was doing a lot, spending a lot of time on airplanes uh, and going back and forth. And you know, that's sustainable for a certain period of time, but not forever. So from a personal point of view, it was time, I think, to be in the same city as my family. Mm-hmm. Um, from a professional point of view, uh, you know, the company was at an interesting point where we'd had this big run of new drugs. Um, you know, company had done well. Company was now facing a period of... Um, you know, execution of careful management of the company. Uh, and I, you know, I, I thought that the company needed something different from what my strongest skill set is. And um, so it was just, it was time to go. And so I had discussion with the board and everybody agreed it was a good time. And so um, I came back. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have another job. I did not. When I when we made that decision and I announced my in, you know decision to leave Biogen, um, I did not have another job, and I didn't have anything in mind, and I didn't know if I wanted another job. Frankly, um, you're about sixty, mid sixties at this point. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seventy, uh, and uh, so you know, did I want another job or not? I I I wasn't sure. And so, and you know, frankly, when I made the decision, I was still running Biogen, so I didn't have a lot of time to explore a lot of opportunities to see if there was anything really interesting to do next. I did have a couple of conversations, uh, you know, with some VCs about opportunities, and I ended up talking with Bob Nelson about, and, uh, and Christina Burrow, one of his partners, about things that Arch was doing and companies that were going, mainly about thinking about did I want to sit on it and were there interesting boards for me to sit on right not about did I want to go be CEO of some company and um, the one that piqued my interest was Veer 
um, and for a number of reasons. Uh, but as I got more and more into thinking about fear and thinking about what role I should have or if I wanted a role and if so what, I became more and more enamored with the thought of actually becoming CEO and continued discussions with Bob Nelson. And this would have been 2016? This was 2016, uh -huh. late, late 2016, second half of, the, of 16. Um, thinking about what I wanted to do, having discussions with Bob, having discussions with Vicky Sato, who was also talking about joining the board. Um, and then with some of the other board members who I joined, it clearly was going to be a very interesting company. And this was in the middle of a bull market. I mean, 14, 15 were, you know, tremendous years yeah. for new drugs approved That's and IPOs. There's just a lot of heat and energy in the startup space. A lot of pharma there and big was. biotech people were, yeah. were were intrigued as well. Yeah. No, they You weren't the only one. No, that's right. And so, um, and then the question is, what role do you want to have? Because being CEO is a commitment, right? And it's a commitment to work hard and to work hard for some number of years. And so you have to think, you know, long and hard about whether you really want to take that on. So what was it about Veer that stood out for you? Well, a couple of things. One is the need for better treatments and better preventatives for serious infectious diseases around the world, things that range from flu to hepatitis B, HIV, TB, I mean, the list goes on, for which there are either no therapies or um, inadequate therapies. Uh, huge need. The fact that a lot of the pharmaceutical industry was getting out of infectious disease some other companies were staying in but reducing their footprint. So there are certainly big companies with really good programs. So you can think about J&J &J and Roche and Merck and others, a few others. But relative to um, oncology or um, CNS or metabolic disease, the amount of R&D being put into it relative to need is relatively small. And there are biotech companies focused on infectious disease, but many of them, or most of them, are small, narrowly focused, underfunded. And so their vision was to create a, a large, aggressive, well-funded biotech company that could take advantage of some of the new technologies that were coming along that made it possible to approach diseases for which it was not really feasible to think about developing therapies a few years ago. These same kind of technologies that we see applied in oncology and okay. these other exactly. so you can more think, hot indications yeah, so can be applied here. So yes, it's manipulating the immune system to, to deal with tumors. You can manipulate the immune system to deal with infectious diseases as well, maybe in different ways, uh, but the approach would be the same. Um, and so there's an opportunity, the science was ready, there was a need. Uh, and there was a vision, and all of that I found very compelling. Can you expand a little bit on the science? Because at a company like Biogen, you had this diverse portfolio. You did some, some areas uh, that where most people would say that the science is less mature, like, say, neuroscience, for instance. Right. <laughs> a lot more underlying biology needs to be worked out, whereas with infectious disease, uh, your animal models tend to be more predictive, uh, did you? How much? How much did the science itself weigh into your uh, well, your calculus? Science always the, the science, which to me equates to the likelihood of technical success, always has to be a factor and the foundation of, of a company. So, you know, like at Biogen, uh, you know, the aducanumab, the phase three antibody for Alzheimer's disease, is is somewhat controversial. Not everyone believes and they believe the failure of previous antibodies doesn't bode well for aducanumab. The great debate about the underlying biology. Do right. we know enough about it? Do we know enough about it? We'll see. But the question you have to ask to me, and I'll use that as an example because I think it's a generalizable example, is why did previous antibodies fail? And does that mean that antibodies are not a good reason? Or does it mean the the amyloid hypothesis is flawed, or it, are there other reasons? And so the, that, in that particular case, the hypothesis is that the initial initiating pathology is our plaques, um, and that if you can remove those plaques in some way, you can interfere, or let's say slow down the rate of cognitive decline. 
all the antibodies, that's a hypothesis for all of the amyloid antibodies. So the question is, did they remove plaque? So the first clinical question to ask is not, does my antibody have an impact on cognition? The first clinical question to ask is, does it remove plaque? Uh -huh. Because if it doesn't remove plaque, you haven't tested that hypothesis. And so I think aducanumab is the first antibody that's been shown unequivocally to remove substantial amounts of plaque from the brain. And coming back to technologies, we have better ways of measuring this now. And we do. And that's not a criticism of previous you know, studies. It's just that the technology to really assess that uh, you know, objectively didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so now we can answer that question. It does remove the plaque. And so then the question is, do you believe that removing plaque at that stage of the disease which is kind of early, but many decades after plaque starts, but early in the cognitive decline, will have an impact on cognition or not. And you can say yes, you can say no, and there are different people who believe different amounts. I don't think the answer is known. And then the question is, is it, do you think you have a reasonable chance of getting a successful answer? And if so, then you should do the experiment. And so that's the decision we made at, at Biogen. That was a big debate, big decision, big and, resources and it, allocated and I around why that. It's a debate, and we'll see what the answer is. You know, I, the trials should read out. I don't know when. I, you know, I, I don't. 2019, right? I'm supposed to read out this year at some point. I don't know exactly when. Um, we'll see. Um, you know, the other, I think, the uh, you know, Nusinersen, the product for. Um, Spinal muscular. SMA, spinal muscular atrophy. That really is very interesting science, and that you know originated at Ionis and Biogen in licensed it. But you know that's an RNA drug that alters splicing. That's a really high tech drug, mm -hmm. and it provides an amazing benefit to kids and their families who would be dead, frankly, many of them without it, and it. You know, so that's incredible. It's one of those new modalities we've been hearing about the promise for 20 years, the, the <laughs> exactly. dividends from the Human Genome Project, and we're finally beginning to see. And this heartens it's, it's, the people <laughs> like Bob Nelson and Christina Burrow. They yeah. look at this and think, boy, we can do this in lots of different places. Well, it now. is amazing, right, that it, it does take so long. And, you know, I think like new discoveries like that generally take longer than people think. But I think when they're first discovered, you, it's hard to understand the full impact that they might have. So the impact, I think, will be huge. And it's not just, you know, antisense coming from Ionis, but all the siRNA drugs coming from Alnylam and other companies and potentially other classes of RNA drugs, mRNA from Moderna. So... Um, so describe for me the, these conversations that you're having with the VCs about yeah. uh, what they want to do with Veer. Well, the VCs, you know, look, Bob and, and you know, people at Arch are quite remarkable. And they see the opportunity. They have some certainly ideas of what, you know, they think should be done. But the view is, let's get a great team. Let's, let's fund that team well. Let's, you know, m monitor them and work with them and help them and let them go. So they have not been prescriptive about what we should be doing. Uh, the Bob and Christina and the other people on the board have been um, credible, actually. Very helpful, critical in a very good way, um, good sounding board. So it's been really, and I, you know, look, I, I don't want to sound like I'm sucking up or anything, but it's really been a pleasure to work with the, the board. You know, I had a conversation just yesterday here with Daphne Zohar at PureTech, and mm -hmm. she described this model of people, technology, and money. And yep. you got to get these all three uh, together in yeah. the same place. Yeah. That they were, that they, and that they attract each other. And the absence of one of them repels the rest. And, and I thought that was a really interesting comment. So, well, the, you know, but you have to start somewhere. So in this case, uh, maybe maybe they get the order different. Well, you, <laughs> but you get the people, and then the technology, and the money. That yeah. gives you the right to go get some of the technologies. Uh, well, I think what you need are the people and the money. And if you have the right people and enough money, you can get the right technologies, right? And so I suppose you could start with the technology and people and go get the money. So maybe there are different ways to approach it. In our case, we started with the vision, some technology, and the money. And look, you know, I've been in large companies, I've been in small companies. They each have advantages and disadvantages, right? The, the advantage of, of large companies, they have lots of money 
they've got really in-depth expertise across the board. And they've got people who understand every aspect of drug discovery and development in depth. And, you know, their limitation is size. They're big, and that requires more process, and that slows them down. Small companies don't have their process. They can be fast, but they typically don't have the same level of depth of expertise uh, that the larger companies have because it's a small sandbox. And you can't get the best toxicologist or you can't get the best CMC and process development people because there's not enough to keep them interested. Mm -hmm. So having a larger company with a much broader swath of programs coming forward allows you to attract a different level of people. If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe for $149 a year per person. Group discounts are available for companies and universities with multiple readers. For more information, write to me at luke at timmermanreport.com. And today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com slash long run. In this case, they, they, you start with a huge amount of money. I don't know. What was it? $500 million? Well, we've raised over 600. Uh-huh. So 632, I think is the official number that our, our initial financing rounds closed at. Um, so we start with a lot of money. With a big vision. Um, I think the vision attracts people because there's so much good that can be done and, and as well as, as money to be made. Um, we started with a very interesting technology base that um, Arch had put together as the foundation technology for the company. But Now, is this the one from Oregon Health Science yes. University? Uh, and Gates Foundation was involved here too? They were. Um, and I can come back to that in, in a second. But... You know, there was also an understanding that that was not the technology base of the company. That was a component of what would ultimately be a much broader base. And so... You would have to go on a shopping spree. My date was to go bring in some interesting technologies, some interesting programs, jumpstart the company, build up R&D that could then bring the next generation of anti-infectives forward. Uh, and that's been the focus for the past couple of years, frankly. So what was this technology from OHSU? Well, OHSU technology, which comes out of the lab of a guy named Lou Picker and uh, Klaus Fru, two, two investigators in, at OHSU, is the use of CMV, cytomegalovirus, as a vaccine vector. So you can take CMV, you can insert into it regions from other viruses, other pathogens, infect animals with those CMV, and get very vigorous T cell responses against the proteins in the insert, encoded by the insert. Right? A live attenuated form of CMV? So live attenuated forms of CMV. And the interesting thing about CMV is it is the incredibly potent inducer of T cell responses. So you take the same insert and put it into CMV as opposed to add adenovirus or other vectors, you get a much more vigorous T cell response if it's part of CMV. Mm-hmm. So the CD8s, the, the killer T cells. Yeah, you get a very long-lasting CD8 uh, and, uh, response. And the other thing about the cytomegalovirus that's interesting is you can program it by deleting various genes of CMV, making some other changes. You can induce different types of T cell responses. You can get, you know. Um, T-cells that are restricted by MHC class 1, which is what you typically get. You can get MHC class 1 restriction, but with a different set of epitopes from a different mutant CMV. You can get T-cell responses that are restricted by MHC class 2 or by MHC-E, which are atypical. You don't typically see those in other vector systems. And then the interesting observation was that the CMV variants that induce T-cell responses in 
restricted by MHC class 2 and MHCE were able to protect monkeys from infection with SIV. Right? And protecting monkeys from SIV infection has been extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and that has been a pretty predictive model of, of what happens in humans. The best model we have for an HIV vaccine, which doesn't exist. <laughs> which does not exist. And so there, there is now a vaccine for monkeys. Right? It, uh -huh. protects, it does protect them. Um, from a challenge. From multiple challenges over multiple years. So uh -huh. we have data now out to eight years. These monkeys are still protected. And if you challenge them, with the virus, you can see a temporary transient blip in the in the viral titer in the plasma, and then it comes back down. So you know the challenge worked because you see a temporary blip, but it comes back down, and it, it it's baseline. You can't detect anything. And is this from a single shot vaccination? Yes, this is from a single vaccination with cytomegalovirus. And so when you know it came to Vera a couple of years ago, the you know the input was clear. You have this the CMV variants, and the output is you know, resistance, but what went on in the middle was murky. Uh, it's still not completely clear, but I think we've, we and the people at OHSU have made substantial progress into understanding the mechanisms of what's going on. We can now tell if a monkey is protected or not by looking at gene expression patterns in lymphoid cells. Um, uh, and we're beginning to understand the mechanisms. So. The immediate goal of this program, and the work is funded by the Gates Foundation, is to move the equivalent CMV vectors into humans. So we will, uh, we're, let's say we're on track to do that um, by the about the end of this year. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so are there any CMV uh, vector vaccines of any kind? No, there are not, um, and so it's a new approach. Uh, you know, look, these are CMV vectors that are highly attenuated um, they're um, you know they, they don't replicate very well at all and so that's a challenge for the manufacturing of course because you have attenuated viruses that don't replicate you still have to grow them up for the vaccine so but we've solved some of those issues and we now have a process that we think is good for at least through phase two and uh, we're continuing to work on that process so that if they should be efficacious as well in humans that we'll be able to manufacture them. But first in man with a, a new um, modality, so to yeah, speak. I mean, you, you got a lot of questions to so, answer, like immunogenicity, for instance. Well, we do, and you you can, well, CMV is highly immunogenic, right? But um, you can superinfect. So if people are infected with CMV, you can reinfect them with CMV. So we're not restricted to people who aren't infected with CMV. Um, and, you know, so much of the population is CMV positive in any case. But so, it's latent uh, in, in a lot of cases, it's right? It's latent in a lot of cases. Um, you know, some people shed, but mostly it's, it's latent. Um, so we'll see. If it works, it's huge because the potential is not restricted to HIV. Gates is also funding us to work on TB vaccine, and that's coming along. It's a little bit behind the, the uh, HIV. But you can think about other infectious diseases, you can think about oncology, you can think about all kinds of applications. But, you know, we don't want to get ahead of our skis here. We'll first want to be able to demonstrate that this works in humans as it does in monkeys. Uh huh. Right? What about flu? Uh, flu, we have a very interesting approach to flu, which is not based on CMV. Uh, so here's, here's how we think about flu. There, are, there exist now pan-flu antibodies. Right? And, and uh, you know, we have one, uh, other com a few other companies have them. There aren't a lot of these around, but there are some. And the idea is for stockpiling, you know, in the case of a pandemic, government might buy these well, well, to protect no, against multiple strains. No, I've heard that story. Partly, but um, I think it's a more interesting story than that. That a number of these, or a couple of them, have been in clinical trials for treatment of flu, and they failed. Uh, and I, I think they failed because that's a it's a very difficult clinical design, right? That by the time patients get the antibody, they're already three to five days into a flu infection. So you've got other inflammatory processes going on. The body's own immune system is kicking in. And then you're asking whether or not the application of the antibodies can shorten the duration of the symptoms. And the answer is no, you don't. Uh, so the, the pan-flu antibodies have not proven 
very interesting as therapeutics. On the other hand, you know that the presence of neutralizing antibodies that are there before infection are protective. And that's how the vaccine works. When the vaccine works, it's because it induces neutralizing antibodies that then protect that patient from, from infection. So they, they work as prophylactics, they don't work as therapeutics. The problem with the vaccines, uh, and as you know, the vaccines are partially effective, so they can vary from 10 to 60% efficacious depending on the year. Um, it, and to, they, probably the average for the last 10 years is about 40%. Mm -hmm. you know? So it means they prevent 40% of infections. The reason they don't do more largely is that sometimes they, they uh, don't cover some of the strains that are circulating. Mm -hmm. The other is that not every patient who gets the vaccine generates a good immune response as a result. And so the combination of those two things limits the vaccine. So we have these antibodies, now Panflu antibodies, that neutralize every strain of flu that's arisen in the past hundred years um, that uh, we've altered, so they, we've extended their half-life. Um, and so the idea is to give these antibodies to people in the fall, a shot that would look very much like a flu shot, like a vaccine. You overcome the limitation of strain coverage because these are pan-flu antibodies, and you overcome the limit, the issue of patients generating an immune response because you're actually giving the antibodies. You're not counting on the patient's immune system to generate the antibodies. The half-life is going to have to be six months or so, right? Well, the half-life uh, half we think of these antibodies, we'll see, it predicted to be two to three mm -hmm. months. Uh, and so what that means is, say, two half-lives later, they still have to be at a protective dose. So you can back calculate what dose you have to give at the beginning. So it has to cover a full season. Is a quarter, right? So a quarter of your dose still has to be protective. Right, but you need, I bring it up because yeah, it has no, to cover, has the, to whole cover the whole season. One yeah. shot for the whole season. That's right. So it's one shot for the whole season. And so that's our approach to flu. Now, and that would be a program that you would have been licensed in, made these modifications on half-life and, and some other things, the, the, and re repositioned the product, really, in a, in a prophylactic setting. Yeah, these antibodies were generated at a company called Humabs, which we acquired, a Swiss company. Mm -hmm. um, we've done some engineering on those uh, antibodies. Uh, and they're, um, you know, they're in, as we speak, they're in toxicology testing, and the clinical lots are being manufactured, and we would expect to get them in the people this summer. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we don't think this would necessarily be a product for healthy 20-year-olds. You know, the vaccine's $20. And um, if you're 20 and you get the flu, chances are, you know, you stay in bed for a few days and then you recover and you, you go home. If you are elderly, if you have emphysema or COPD or uh, underlying cardiovascular issue, flu is a much more serious issue. And last year in the U.S., 80,000 people died of flu. Mm -hmm. And most of those people have some underlying medical condition. So for large segments of the population, not everybody, but t still tens of millions of people, there is uh, a need to get the efficacy from of preventing flu higher than 40%. So this was one of the items that you, I think you announced a year ago that you had acquired these from Humabs. Yes. Uh, that was kind of your, your, your annual J.P. Morgan update. Yeah. Uh, now, just what was also going on in the background here? You you had the money, you, you came, you had this really good board, some of those people you mentioned. Um, you're recruiting people. Um, right. How um, how does the you know this model of a you know big finance company, big vision company, change the recruiting dynamic? Oh, it changes it drastically. So I'll give you an example. So when I first got here, you know these CMV programs are exciting, certainly risky, and but but potentially very exciting. Uh, the CMC part, the process of the manufacturing, are a huge challenge. And Veer did not have the people who were going to solve that problem. Right? And you know, so I looked at the efforts going on and said, we need, we need help. And we need different people from whom we have now. And so we were able to um, recruit a fellow named Mike Kmark. Now, Mike headed all of technical operations for Wyeth. 
you know, was in charge of the process development and manufacturing, built the plants that made Enbrel. And then, you know, after Pfizer acquired Wyeth, he went on to have a senior position at Merck. So he is not a guy, and he's a, been a consultant and advisor and has trained half the people who are heads of technical operations at pharma companies. Um, so he would not go to a normal startup. It's too small, sandbox. Well, him. and hearing you describe the CMV opportunity, I mean, that sounds to me kind of like your classic 20 or $30 million Series A company with kind of a narrow, uh, yeah. you know, if scope. that's the only thing that you're doing. Yeah. Right? So, I, you know, I probably I, can't recruit a guy like Mike Kmart to a company like that. You can't. But I called Mike and I said, look, we've got an issue here, you know, on this. I, I need your help to solve this issue. So he initially came, you know, as a consultant to solve a specific issue. As we worked with Mike and it became clear to him the breadth of, of the company, this was a very attractive opportunity and he decided to join full time. Right. Skip. Virgin, our CSO, was chairman of immunology and pathology at WashU, member of the National Academy, one of the, uh, I think, most respected viral immunologists in the country. Um, he found the, the opportunity attractive because of the resources and because of the vision and because of the other people in the company. And he saw an opportunity to really work to with a reasonable chance of being able to treat infectious diseases, he would not have gone to a more narrowly focused company. Yeah, I could move to, to San Francisco, and maybe if this doesn't work, um, you know, it's not going to go lights out in 18 months. And I'm, I'm going to have the resources to really do this over the long term and make some some difference. And I think so. I think you know we would not have been able to recruit Skip to a more narrowly focused uh, company and you know you can you can go on on and on for the other the other people that we have so absolutely the vision the financing and the people's because this once you have a small group of really accomplished people th the next one incrementally gets easier because they're joining the, what is clearly a very experienced and, and capable group Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that builds on itself. It's like what they say, raising your first million is the hardest. Yeah, it is. I, look, my view of biotech companies as a whole, as an industry, is, has evolved over the years. And I, if you look at the overall productivity of the biotech industry, it's not that different from the pharma industry. Uh, but the variance from the mean can be huge. So if you're a company of 50,000 people, it's hard to deviate from the mean. Right? On average, you're average. Mm -hmm. right? If you're a company of 50 people, you can deviate a lot from the mean, and that can be in either direction. Right? And so I think the probably the most efficient research organizations are the top-tier biotech companies, which have attracted a self-selecting aggregate of people who are really good at what they do. And then they attract more people, and they attract the money, and they pick out the right technology, and they they become extremely successful. And then you start at C you end up starting with CMV. Because it, uh, it's part of a bigger vision. You, you you pick up assets for flu. Then you know somebody probably has the bright idea. Well, what about hepatitis B? Well, and, and RNAi. Uh, yeah, and, and you know somebody who you know is working in that in, in Cambridge. Yeah, so, but let, let me finish the antibody story, because we didn't pick up assets for flu. We picked up a company that had made an interesting antibody for flu, but had made 30 other interesting antibodies and had the ability to generate fully human antibodies and to screen hundreds of thousands of B cells uh, or plasma cells to identify antibodies that had properties that occur only rarely. Right? And the flu antibody, this pan flu antibody being one example, but there are many others. And so we have a very interesting RSV antibody that also hits metanumovirus. That's possible, but they are very rare. It's hard to find those antibodies. The Ebola antibody that they isolated in collaboration with the NIH is extremely interesting. And that's now in a program being led by the NIH is in the Congo, being administered to patients in the current, current outbreak. Um, and so the, the, you know, that was the second arm, leg of a technology base that we have this incredibly state-of-the-art potent ability to generate interesting antibodies. Um, and the first application of that is flu, or one of the first applications of that is flu. Now we move on to hep B, because we thought hep B is a large unmet 
need. Um, and we wanted to bring together a collection of assets that we thought would be effective against hepatitis B. Um, one of the, I think, cornerstones of a, uh, or let's say the potential cornerstone of a, a hep B treatment is sRNA to knock down expression of all the viral proteins, which is probably the first step of what you have to do. Um, Alnylam, probably the leading company developing siRNAs. Uh, so we have a you know collaboration with Alnylam now. We have a right to use their technology in infectious diseases. Uh, our first target there has been hepatitis B. And so we have with Alnylam a hepatitis B siRNA that's now in the clinic. Uh, and uh, we should be getting data from that over the course of this year. And in the RNA world, uh, I know Arrowhead has had a program for right. a number of years. Um, Aldylum did too. When I look at the re uh, press release that you and they did, you know, John Marganori, the CEO there, used the word focus. Like, we'll put this asset, we'll, we'll put this asset in Veer's hands, because, partly because they're focused on infectious disease. What? And you know, his company has. Other, other priorities? Well, they do. I mean, look, Alnylam as a platform, you know, technology company developing our siRNA technology <clears throat> has to make choices of where it's going to integrate vertically and make it develop its own products. And they are not, you know, they're not Pfizer. And so they're, they have limited resources and they have to be focused on certain areas so that they can afford to do them and do them well. And that can expand over time, of course, as they become larger and profitable. But for the initial years, they have to be very focused. So the technology has applications outside of what they're able to do themselves. And so, and hepatitis B is one, one example of that. And so for them, I think, working with a company like Veer that was focused on infectious diseases and has the capabilities and the resources to actually be aggressive about moving it forward, we become a very attractive partner to them. They, of course, are a very attractive partner for us because they're the leading company developing siRNA. So kind of a win-win collaboration. You can trust that the chemistry has been worked out pretty well. The delivery technology, they've busted their pick on for many years. That's right. And so we get to take advantage and piggyback on all of that. And they get to piggyback on our expertise in infectious diseases and our ability to, you know, carry out the clinical program in a, in a competent and aggressive way. And instead of this being a, a third drawer priority, perhaps at, at a company like Elnilum, this is this is your number one lead program to it, the clinic, right? It is, uh, yeah, one of our uh, really important programs, obviously. Um, and you know, we have that's it's our first molecule in the clinic. Uh, so we, we, you know, we felt good about that. We also have from Humabs uh, a very interesting uh, antibody to hepatitis B S antigen that into which we've engineered some unique properties, uh, which in combination with the siRNA seems to have more than additive activity. So they each have some activity on their own in preclinical models. If you put them together, it's more than the sum of the two. And so that seems very interesting. So we think that's an interesting approach, the two of those, that anybody will get into humans in the second half of this year. Uh, and so uh, next year we'll be ready to do some combo studies on the two of them. Or we hope to be able to, assuming everything goes well. Uh, and then there are other uh, molecules that we are in the process of getting access to that we think would also be potentially interesting combinations with both of those or one or the other of them. So we have a large hepatitis B program testing you know, multiple combinations going forward. So, so you think this will be kind of like the, the hepatitis C story where you've got a cocktail? I Yes, I think, look, for a, I'll tell you what we currently think, right? And there's a little bit of data, but not a lot to support this, is that for some patients and a minority of patients, the siRNA alone could be lead to a, a functional cure. For the majority of patients, they're probably, they will need something on top of the siRNA in order to re-stimulate the immune system, allow the immune system to get control again over, over the virus. And so we have a number of ways that we're thinking about doing that, the antibody being perhaps the most interesting, promising, uh, but there are other approaches as well. And this may take more in licensing. Uh, it could. It could be in-licensing, could be collaboration. You know, lots, lots of companies have interesting compounds, and um, I think the, many of those companies are, 
um, you know, have the view that the we have yet to define the most interesting combinations of products, and so there there are opportunities that we and others have to put together a thoughtful group of assets to test together. Now, listening to all of this, uh, you you kind of summarize this in your statements. I've seen as multi-platform, multi-program company. You you've got you know some some flu manufacturing, some live attenuated uh, virus. You got uh, antibody manufacturing, d- discovery and development. Uh, siRNA there's a lot going on here uh, in different indications as well uh, some people might list, listen to this and think boy that sounds like you could get unfocused you could get undisciplined with so much money and so much going on um, some people might say that some people have said that right uh-huh. um, and that's yeah we're aware of that risk right and so we have been very careful about staying focused. We're working on flu, we're working on hepatitis B, we have our CM, two CMV programs going forward, and we have early earlier research going forward that we hope will lead to the next generation of compounds. Uh, so from a disease area, we're quite focused. From a technology point of view, we do. We have antibodies, we have CMV, we have siRNA. For the siRNA, we have a very competent partner in El Nylum, <clears throat> and so I'm not too worried about the, the manufacturing and process development there. That's Alnilam knows how to do this. They've been doing it for years. The CMV we've had to work out. We have a mid-level process now. Certainly a process adequate for the th- through phase two. And like all new processes, we're continuing to work on it. And the, you know the goal, and I think the likely outcome is that by the time we need a high, more efficient process, we'll have one. Uh, antibody manufacturing, we have some really good people we brought in from Genentech. We have great relationship with uh, external CMOs. And so we are getting cell lines producing our antibodies at competitive yields. Um, and you know, for infectious diseases, we have to be certainly cognizant of cost of goods. This is, you know, these are not oncology products that can generate $100,000 a year per patient. And so I think we're, uh, we have that under control. And so, yeah, we, we could get unfocused. We could, um, you know, spend money we don't need to spend. Um, if we lose sight of the fact that those are possibilities, then maybe we go down that route. But we are very carefully focused on those issues. How many employees do you have? About 170. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any wet lab? Any, any research function? Of course. Um, yeah, we, we hired as our CSO, Skip Virgin, um, who uh, has built up, or as I say, is building up a, a really interesting research group. Uh, we've already got some new targets identified that we think could be interesting. Uh, these are cellular targets that are required for the life cycle of certain pathogens. And so we think that inhibition of those cellular targets could provide protection against multiple pathogens. And so we've got genetic data, for example, to say that certain genes, certain pathway, when disrupted, blocks infection by norovirus, blocks infection by strep, blocks infection by fungus. Um, And we're continuing to do those genetic screens. So the goal is over the course of this year and going forward, that we'll have a steady stream of cellular targets coming forward against which we can make drugs that would prevent infection by a variety of pathogens. Okay, well, yeah. that that's a more integrated operation than I, I was aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you, in your last job, needed to pay a lot of attention to the external macro environment, sure. uh, things like reimbursement, uh, politics, drug pricing, uh, do you kind of go down into the startup rabbit hole and become blissfully unaware of all these things, or do you still uh, still pay attention? I don't think anybody has the luxury of ignoring those issues today, even if you're doing early research, right? So our flu product, right? So um, assuming it works, say it's just hypothetically saying it increases effectiveness from 40 to 80%, right? Um, it's an antibody. We can't sell for 20 bucks. Cost of goods is, doesn't allow that, so we're going to have to charge more for it. So then the question is, for what populations is paying more for that additional protection 
uh, a reasonable thing for which populations that it provide real value. What's reasonable? What's what, fair? What's reasonable? What's fair? And so, you know, how much costs are you saving by avoiding hospitalization, avoiding doctor's visits? How do you think about lost work time? How do you think about improved quality of life? So you can put those things together and you can, you can identify populations. We already have hired our first health economist and we've got other health economists that, on the outside that we're working with to be very thoughtful about what the appropriate populations are. I think every drug, by the time ours get to the market, will be focused or let's say will be priced largely according to the value it provides. And so we're very cognizant of that. And uh, if we don't think we can sell a drug for a price that provides good value, we won't develop it. But what, uh, I mean, can you even ballpark this for me at all? Like what, what would be a fair, a, a fair range for something like a, an HBV uh, treatment? Um, it, well, it, no, it's hard to ballpark it because... Um, you don't know yet. Suppose you had a treatment that cured 100% of the people. Hep C, right? Cures mm -hmm. not 100%, but 99 plus percent of the people who get the yep. thing get cured. The price of, of those drugs is is good on a uh, on a uh, you know on a pharmacoeconomic benefit. It's worth it. The benefit they get is cost effective on an individual cost, basis. It's cost effective. Budgetary analysis yes, was a different and story. So that's a different story. And I just saw what I was reading this morning about, I forget the, it might have been Bluebird that was thinking about a five year pricing strategy. Yep, installments for gene therapy. Installments. So I think for cures, right, that you can think about it in a different Rather than paying all up front, you could pay a certain amount per year, like a seat license. You know, that if, if that therapy stops becoming uh, effective later on and you're not protected anymore, you could get retreated, maybe get retreated for free, and you just continue to pay your thing. So I think those are evolving models of how to pay for this stuff that are changing now and will continue to change. The bottom line is, you know, we're not developing $100,000 drugs for, you know, orphan diseases. We're developing drugs that are going to have huge volume because we're going to be treating maybe tens of millions of people with them. Um, they'll be lower priced, they'll provide good value, and we'll be able to make a lot of money because of the volume, not because of the we're charging exorbitant prices. Well, this comes back to the question at the very beginning about making sure that everyone can get access to the medicine. Uh, uh, that's part of it. Look, part of the, uh, you know, look, I, I like the relationship with the Gates Foundation. I mean, obviously they're providing us funding, and that's a great thing, but they also have a commitment to, um, you know, provide these things to the developing world. They can so, hold your feet to the fire to an extent. Well, they can hold their, our feet to the fire, um, and uh, look, they, they will buy the material from us, mm -hmm. and so um, I think it's, it's again, it's a win-win situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about something like HIV, there's certainly a market for an HIV vaccine in the U.S. and in Europe. But HIV is a huge problem in sub-Saharan Africa where there's no market. So you'd like to get it to all those populations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So is, what is your, your number one worry? Is it pricing, that, those storm clouds on the horizon, or is there something else? I actually, I know I'm not worried about pricing because I think the drugs that we're developing will provide good value that we'll be able to justify and that will be able to be quite profitable uh, on uh, by providing drugs at the value that they deliver to patients. So I'm not, I'm not concerned about it for Veer. I, I have some concerns for the broader industry, right? There's increasing pressure, obviously, on drug prices. Um, the, you hear, you know, the, certainly the, uh, you know, you hear both <coughs> Trump and members of Congress talking about drug prices. I, I don't know if there's something that will happen. Um, it, I, again, and I, this comes back to my days at, at Biogen, that the issue, yeah, there's an issue with drug prices, but isolating drug prices from the rest of healthcare costs and isolating it from the incentives that people have is, is going to do more damage than good. 
Yeah, but there are a lot of categories that uh, it's hard to explain. MS, rheumatoid arthritis, insulin, these things have been going up, way up. Not a lot of innovation. Some of this occurred at Biogen. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of innovation there with the oral Tecfidera, but, you know, uh, Avonex, hard. And this, this, you, you were there. No, look, I was there. And look, these are very complicated decisions that companies make, and there are multiple constituencies in, in, involved. If you're in any public company, uh, you have to generate a return that is, satisfies your investors. You want to have enough money to do the next generation of R&D. You take the um, aducanumab trial. That's a billion-dollar trial. Mm-hmm. And it, it requires building a new plant. So it's a huge investment, huge bet that Biogen is making. Um, if it fails, that investment is just gone. You know, if and so if it works, obviously, you know, they have a great new product. But you you don't want to put companies in a position where they have to curtail the kind of research that could lead to new therapy for Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and A situation where you invest the billion dollars and then you wake up one day and Medicare says, hey, great, you guys cured Alzheimer's. Here's $100 a patient. Well, <laughs> that or, you know, you, you have to take a 20% price cut on your products uh, and we're sorry that your profitability is going to drop by 40%, but you're still making money, so don't worry about it. The, you know, what's the response of companies to that kind of pressure? The response will be not to cut sales and marketing because that will become more important. Uh, it will be to cut things that impact your bottom line 10 years from now. And that's, that's the research stuff. So there should be no, I agree, there's something you know, that, that we have to deal with in terms of drug prices and general healthcare costs in the U.S. and incentives in the system. Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. But um, I, I think a kind of brute hammer approach to say, you know, prices have to come down by X will be really counterproductive and it won't solve the healthcare cost issue in the U.S. So incentives are a problem, you know, and... There are a lot of perverse uh, and, incentives in the you know, system. I read the People getting rewarded for things that they shouldn't be rewarded for. Well, and so I read the articles about, you know, the average drug went up 9.9%, right, at, at the first of the year. How much of that goes back to the pharmaceutical manufacturers? It's not 9.9%. My guess is it's 2%. So my guess is that after all the discounting and all the middlemen take their cut and everything, that the increase the pharma companies will cover inflation and maybe a little bit, but not much more than that. And so, you know, you, know, you think they're going to get that 10% onto the bottom line of the pharma companies. You don't. You get some small fraction of it. And so, where does that other 8% go? Right? And, and what so, value are those in people pro- providing to this whole system? That, that's right. So, you know, it's pharma companies get the brunt of the attack because they've raised the prices. Yeah. But they've raised the prices that much so they can get a small piece of that pie. Yeah? And so I, I understand and I'm sympathetic in part to the argument. But there, there to, are, to deal with this issue rather than putting the pressure on the manufacturers. But there's also a lot of things that go on with list prices that are just hard to explain in, in any real rational way. It's not because of innovation. We've got a more valuable product so we're going to charge twice as much. Uh, but <laughs> George, actually, we're about out of time, so we could have a longer conversation yeah. about this. I, uh, I hope that Veer is one of those companies that can come forward with, with the things that you describe uh, would be bona fide advances for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think there has to be a reward for that. We can debate about how much, how big, what the margin maybe ought to be. Uh, but... Look, there has to be a reason to do it in the first place. There has to be. And look, drugs are going to have to be priced according to the value they provide. It's moving in that way. I don't know if that's going to happen in two years or ten years. But clearly, that's that's the trend. And that's not. it's hard to argue that's not reasonable. And so, um, you know, there are lots of challenges in that model. You know, the same drug can provide very different levels of benefit for different diseases. How do you handle that situation? And so, um, lots of challenges, but I think we have to get there. And so, as we think about our 
products, for example, flu or hep B or any of the others, we have to define what we, th you know, even at the early stages, you have to make an assumption about what benefit your drug is likely to provide. You know, what's the profile going to look like? For what patients, and, and you know, what's the minimum you can charge for it because of the manufacturing costs and, and, and other costs? And, you know, and still make a return that justifies the R&D, right? Th this influences your go-no-go -no -go decisions. And then is there a population where it makes sense that that drug could provide a good value? Mm -hmm. That's the equation that goes into our thinking today about our products. And that was, I tell you, that wasn't true at Exelixis, right? And, and you know, yeah, there was ago, the, you didn't worry about that stuff. Today, you'd be crazy not to worry about it because yeah, it's the, coming. The old assumption was, well, if we do something very cool scientifically and it helps people, we'll, it'll work out. It'll, we will be rewarded. Exactly. Uh, and so we don't live in that world anymore. And so, so we think about it very differently these days. Well, we've got a lot of smart people in the industry. I think, uh, you know, can roll up sleeves and work on that. Yeah. Um, and because uh, if you don't, um, someone will do it for you. Exactly. And, and it will not um, well, be be pretty. No, that's right. Completely agree. Yeah. Thank you very much, George, for joining me on The Long Run. All right. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to PPD Biotech for sponsoring. And thanks to you for listening. See you next episode.